Welcome to Manager Tools. Common One-on-One Mistakes, Chapter 2, Not Following Through. This cast answers these questions. What kind of common mistakes do managers make doing one-on-ones? What will happen if I don't follow up on one-on-one discussions? What could happen if I don't continue to have one-on-ones? Well, if you want answers to these questions and more, keep listening. Here we go. Folks often ask, why don't you bring the Effective Hiring Manager Conference to more locations? Well, we've heard you. And in a couple of months, we'll be bringing our first ever EHMC to Boston. April 16th, 17th, and 18th, we'll be at the Hilton Boston Logan Airport with our EHMC, EMC, and ECCs, respectively. It's our first step into spreading the wealth to more locations, and we hope to see you there. Register today at manager-tools.com forward slash training. We've been teaching one-on-ones for quite a while, and you even longer. So what are the most common mistakes that managers make doing one-on-ones? Gosh, there are a bunch that sort of cluster uh, at the top. One of the big ones, which we're going to allude to today, is not briefing people in advance. Another classic one is the manager going first. But one that's pretty common, but it's easily missed because you don't see it if one-on-ones aren't happening, is the manager who starts doing one-on-ones and then stops. In other words, they don't follow through on the change in behavior they've made. It hasn't become a habit yet, and haven't had long left to get the results. So You know, and we respect that managers are busy and it's hard to keep doing things. Although I would argue that the vast majority of managers that I've seen that do that basically get stalled on what we would call the McGuire hump of the horseman curve. But this is another cast where we can release some data. Some of the data we have is about managers who start and then stop, which happened in the, in some of our studies that we never attempted to capture data on managers stopping, but we have data because there were managers in our studies that stopped. Okay. So we're going to talk about one mistake, not falling through. And the second, the idea that it, it happens pretty frequently, but you don't start or you apologize and start again. Yeah, exactly. So if you're going to start manager tools one-on-ones, there's a danger if you don't keep doing them. There is some risk. The purpose of O3s is to build trust. And the way you build trust, psychology one-on-one, relationships one-on-one, communication one-on-one, is through high-quality and high-quantity communications with someone else. We measure quantity by its frequency and regularity, and we measure quality by the value of the, the communication to the person you're speaking with. So if you want to build trust with your directs, it's easy. Talk to them more frequently about things that are important to them. And if you start something and then stop doing it, it's not going to make you more trustworthy. Now, there's a case to be made that experiments are good, and we think that's generally true. The danger, of course, is if you see this as experiment and you blithely walk away from it, because it's hard, even though your directs are getting value, it's probably going to destroy some trust between you and the directs. And so what we've seen is that some managers try one-on-ones for a week or two, and there are some inevitable pressures or challenges or difficulties around doing something new in the busy managerial professional lives we have. By the way, not that managerial lives were not busy before, they've always been busy, but things in the world have a happen of getting faster and 
more pressurized. There are articles from the journal from 100 years ago that say managers' lives have never been crazier. So if you think that you're living in the craziest time, in a way, you're right. Uh, but everybody, all humankind has always thought they've loved, lived in the busiest, pressure-filled, fastest-paced, greatest rate of change time ever. And I think 100 years from now, people will look back at us and think we were fairly quaint. But look, you know, somebody tries one-on-ones for a week or two. The first thing they find is it makes calendar scheduling more difficult. There's more things on your calendar if you've got 10 managers, 10 directs. So it's harder to find time on your calendar. Plus, um, you've got those 10 potentially moving around. Um, You should listen to our guidance on podcast soup about that. So yeah, things get harder initially. And I've had people come to me and say, oh, no, that didn't work. It didn't, you know, it didn't improve things immediately. I, I don't have time to try things that, that don't improve immediately. And we'll talk about that in a minute. The idea that all of us want a silver bullet for management. You know, but it's fairly well known that if you're going to change something, you shouldn't expect it to magically change things immediately. There are so many quotes about change being hard. One of my favorites is change is hard. You go first. And then we've got the horseman curve. You know, you got to go over a hump before you get into a situation where you're going to have notable more efficiency or effectiveness. And that hump is more work or harder work or dealing with the change and the discomfort and so on. And as Dan McGuire said, our good friend Dan McGuire said, why do I always feel like I'm on the hump? And therefore, we named it the McGuire hump. So look, if you're a busy manager, maybe you didn't really believe in the idea of one-on-ones that your boss told you to or whatever. We get it. There are reasons why you'd go for a couple of weeks and then stop. It's too hard. Well, I don't think people just whine to us and say it's too hard. They say it's too hard and I wasn't getting anything out of it. I don't know if you plan on talking about it later, but I got to mention, folks, if you're a manager who's tried several things and you do it for two weeks and then you stop and you have a habit of doing that, when you start one-on-ones, your directs know who you are. They know this is just the flavor of the month. And if you think in two weeks, when they know you're probably not going to do it for very long, if you think in two weeks they're going to start sharing stuff with you openly, that you're going to build trust, and they're going to share with you things that afterwards you go like, oh, my God, I'm glad I'm doing one-on-ones because, man, I needed to know that, and I wouldn't have known it if I didn't have one-on-ones. You're not going to have that experience in two weeks. I'm sorry. It's trust. It takes lots of communication. It takes a while to get the results. Yeah, exactly. You you know, if you've tried that a bunch of times and, and you quit after a couple of weeks, both you become less likely to change. Hey, nothing works, right? It's just, you know, there's nothing that you could do, blah, blah, blah. And then your directs learn that they can resist. They know you're not going to stick with things. They trust you not to fight over the hump of something, to stick with it long enough to make a difference. And they learn to resist. This is the classic direct feeling like, hey, this is just another flavor of the month. Right. Uh, And so you have a double whammy where the manager does it less, but when he or she does, the direct is going to say, well, I'll I'll just push back hard. And it will appear to the manager that nothing is going to change from this, that this isn't going to work either. Now, I think it's pernicious on the part of the direct, but 
let's be clear here, though. That I just want to make sure I, d I didn't mislead people. I don't think the, the direct is doing anything wrong this, in this situation. They're, they're not pushing back just to push back. They're pushing back because the purpose of, when you, if you tell them again, the purpose of one-on-one is to develop a relationship. And trust means trust. And if I think this thing is not going to go on very long, I'm not going to share things that put me at risk long-term. Right? I'm not going to just spill my, my guts on the first week knowing that the relationship, the one-on-ones may not continue and therefore the relationship suffers. Therefore, I'm at higher risk. So they're going to reserve the things you most want to know. They're going to reserve those until they're confident that there is trust there, that this communication is going to continue. They're not being obstinate to be obstinate. They've just learned, like, I'm not going to expose myself. Yeah, I, I think you're right for the majority of directs. I do think, though, there's a minority that is, it's just basically saying, I don't want to change. Yeah, I agree. You know, I don't want to change, and so I can play Flavor of the Month. And that Flavor of the Month takes many forms when it comes to managers starting one-on-ones. You know, that your direct doesn't respond to the initial email for scheduling, which I always find just, yeah, that's, <laughs> I find yeah. just <laughs> nakedly dumb. Asking to be excluded. Oh, no, I don't need these. You know, you and I have a good enough relationship. Or, hey, I'm in a special role. Or, hey, you know, I've been around I'm a just while. special. Yeah. <laughs> Complaining about how much time it's going to take, which is just an indication of the utter hollowness of their position. That they can come to your office and complain for five minutes, about 30 minutes once a week. That they even have time to do the complaining is ludicrous. Complaining about micromanagement, which we have a whole cast about, right? This is the one-on-ones are not micromanagement. If you haven't heard me say this before, folks, if you're fairly new to us and we've got thousands of casts out there, let me just say that on a scale of zero to 10, what the average manager in first world situations, large, let's say multinational corporation, the average level of oversight of the typical manager is a three. Uh, they need to be at six or seven, and you don't get to micromanagement until 10. Micromanagement is just anything that is greater than what is happening now in terms of oversight. But there's a reasonable standard of six or seven. And if you're at a three, your manager needs to practice more oversight. Need, she needs to be more involved in paying attention to what you do and measuring it and giving you guidance and so on. And yes, you can say you'd want more freedom and you're very close to having way too much freedom such that it endangers the way the organization works. And if you want more freedom than somebody knowing what you're doing and keeping track of it and talking to you about it, trusting you, but also verifying what you do because the organization obviously verifies its work. We have enormous QA departments and organizations all over the world. It's not like we trust the manufacturing line. Oh, no, it'll be fine. We don't need to QA anything. Oh, you know, the software developers, if they say it works, it works. We're not going to test their stuff. Uh, that's part of what a manager does is to QA the work of their team. And if you don't like it, uh, that's fine. But start your own company because that's where you'll get the amount of oversight that you would be comfortable with. And I'm kidding a little bit. I don't want you to start your own company, but I want you to recognize that the epidemic of management in the world today is under management, not over management. So what other forms of 
flavor of the month are there suggesting other people have concerns you know boss i've been hearing you may want to hold off on this i've heard some people complaining so the manager maybe smart maybe stupid says who oh well i i couldn't say and did you were you part of the complaint oh no 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 no, no. i'm i'm with you boss it's you know it's somebody else you know i just it's just creepy anyway refusing to talk during the one-on-one I'm talking refusing, like crossing your arms and saying, no, I have nothing. Barely talking, right? They know they have to do something, but they want to give you nothing in terms of value. Or saying there's nothing new to talk about. Showing up late. Not showing up at all. Now, unfortunately, uh, those of you who know us would probably saying, well, that's easy. All those behaviors are just a chance for negative feedback. Maybe not all of them, depending upon the demeanor of the direct. Uh, but if you believe the direct is doing it for pernicious reasons, then probably it would be, except that now is not the time to be giving negative feedback, of course, if you're rolling out the Trinity. On the other hand, you can talk to your direct. You can say, you know, I'm disappointed. I'm disappointed that you didn't respond to the email. I thought you knew that you're supposed to know everything in your mail within 24 hours, and you're supposed to respond within 48 hours to something that's simple from your boss. I'm disappointed about da 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 So you're right, Mike, some of the flavor of the month learning is appropriate self-protection, and some of it is inappropriate self-dealing, and both are due, to some degree, to the manager's behaviors previously, and if you want to reduce the chances for the self-protection and even the inappropriate Self-defense, in both cases, the answer is to continue doing one-on-ones. Now, look, some managers worry that announcing you're going to do one-on-ones, what we recommend, briefing people in advance and so on, is a risk. They think to themselves, what if I start one-on-ones and then, for some reason, decide to stop doing them? But when you think about it, all the concerns about continuing one-on-ones after you start, or, or this is true for any other new behavior, isn't for some reason, but rather, generally, what if they don't work? And the for some reason, what if they don't work, boils down to how much time am I spending? What effort does it cause? What, what cost is there in this versus the value I'm getting in return? We managers make that decision all the time. And look, the reason I say that's true is We don't get this pushback in the case where it works, because if they work, if one-on-ones work, most managers will choose to continue doing them. I suppose there's a small subset, less than 1%, that weirdly think, oh, these are working, I need to stop. Or put differently, their definition of working and our definition of working are probably two different things. But look, we don't recommend you continue to engage in behaviors that aren't working, right? Again, maybe we disagree on the definition of working and the value, and maybe you put no value in the trust you have between your directs. Now, you're deeply misled. You are completely and utterly wrong, but your psychological makeup may make you think, you know, I really don't want to have trust with my directs. I Really, what matters to me is, is they do what I tell them to do. Okay, that's fine, and maybe you'll have... Uh, conversion on the road to your your managerial Damascus, I don't know, but probably we're not going to help you because Manager Tools is built all around building trust uh, as the cornerstone of great outcomes, results, and retention, and so on. 
But all that said, the risk of doing something new and having it not work and having regretted spending the time on it is real. There's no question. It's the same risk we take whenever we all engage in new activities or projects or systems that work. Let's see whether or not this works. So I think the thinking goes, maybe since it won't work, it's better not to announce. It's better to not brief your team. You know, it's kind of better to do it quietly. Now, let me put it this way. I could see the principled argument. It's, it's a slim argument, but it's principled. Hey, Mark, it's going to take me three or four hours to brief my guys, answer questions, send out the email, respond to the email, schedule the briefing, do the briefing, so on. I don't have those three or four hours. And so, therefore, I'm going to save those three or four hours. I would suggest to you that there's no manager I've ever met in America, in the world, who could sustain a defense of, I don't have three or four hours. Because those three or four hours are going to be spent over three or four weeks. So, I can't imagine that that's so. But I actually think that some people say, no, I'm not going to do that. I don't, you know, first of all, I don't like the idea that I have to brief people in advance. And I think they really believe that if they don't brief people in advance and they just sort of start doing them, there's less risk of canceling them later because they perceive things not to have value, which in a way is true. It's just not very professional. If your boss suddenly started doing things quietly that you didn't understand why he or she was doing them, your first thought would probably be to raise an eyebrow. And that's what your directs are doing when you do that to them. So, Look, if things don't work out and you haven't briefed people, you can quickly stop and tell the team, hey, that didn't work, but hey, I'll keep thinking about how to get better. You know, this way you're reducing your investment on, a, on what turned out to be a risky or not valuable move. Hamstringing yourself before you even start. Yeah, that's the problem because the flaw in this thinking, guys, based on the data we have over the number of years is that advanced communications about intent process, roles, and responsibilities vastly increase your chance of success in anything related to managing your team. And we'll share with you our data on this in just a minute. That's why we have previous guidance called Introducing Managerial Change, the cornerstone of which is my rule that never introduce managerial change without first taking the time to introduce the reason for the change. You know, Mike, I mentioned Silver Bullet before. Most managers, in my experience, you know, when they ask me something, just tell me the one thing, Mark. Tell me the one thing. And I, I tell them one-on-ones. And they go, no, 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 I don't mean that. I mean, that, that would take hours every week. That's not one thing. I mean, just the one thing that if I made a small change, you know, five-minute change every week or one change in thinking or whatever that would make things better. I look at them like, Really? That's what you want, something that could take you five minutes or a change in the way you take notes or a different piece of software will change your life. You think it's that easy? And look, we're all busy. And so we feel like, gosh, anything that gives us leverage. And we fear lacking the lack we have of, of mastering management. And so you want something easy and high value and so on. But think about it for a minute, guys. People have been managing this way for 75 years. Maybe you could argue they've been managing this way for 150 years, depending upon how you define managing in the modern sense of things. But there's really no way 
that there is a silver bullet. There is such an ROI maximizing technique or behavior that could have stayed secret through the millions of professionals who have had to manage over the last hundred years or whatever. It's just not possible. Ideas like that don't get hidden. Washington, D.C. is not some vast hotbed of conspiracies where everything that's big and dark is secretly hidden by a cabal of 20 people. Having worked in Washington, I know they can't keep secrets. And look, one-on-ones are not a silver bullet to a lot of people because their definition of silver bullet is something I can do for five minutes or 10 minutes or you know have one meeting one time of 45 minutes and be done. We do think that if you're willing to have a reasonable idea of what silver bullet is, then the answer is one-on-ones. But most people, I think, think it's it's got to be a pretty big silver bullet with a pretty big payoff. That said, when I do cast like this, Mike, and talk about the stumbles we make or the challenges people have or the resistance people put up to our various recommendations, which we've analyzed over the years and tested and measured and so on, studied, many managers out there right now can easily dismiss our guidance here. If you're naturally resistant or hesitant to do one-on-ones because you don't believe in trust, you don't believe in communication, you don't believe in building a relationship with your directs, you don't realize that relationship power is the t- is the tallest tree of the three, relationship power, expertise power, and role power. On the other hand, it's good that we have data. So let's talk, let's talk about the data. What's the danger of not following through? of not continuing to do manager tools one-on-ones after starting them. Twice now, we have gathered data on managers rolling out one-on-ones where we captured results, retention, and trust scores for managers in a control group, managers in a test group, and managers in the test group that didn't finish the course of the rollout. And by the way, we, we didn't want to. They were just managers in the test group that agreed to do one-on-ones that didn't finish, and we kept measuring their data, just just so you know. Yeah. We didn't tell people, you can do one-on-ones for three weeks, and then you have to stop. I think, actually, it would be marginally unethical, but maybe not. I don't know. So, control group managers, there was always a control group. They didn't do anything different. Uh, In the two studies I'm talking about, in one case, there were 220 control group managers. In another case, there were 165. And they were interviewed and surveyed every week to ensure that they weren't doing anything different. In the test group, we had 190 managers in one case, 295 in the other one. They implemented one-on-ones and were required to announce their intentions and conduct briefings in advance. In the test group, some managers abandoned their efforts, uh, 25 in one case, 30 in the other. But we collected data in both tests over 17 months. Performance data you're talking about. Well, yeah, whether or not they did their one-on-ones and what they got in terms of trust and results and retention and so on. And to tell you the truth, those managers who opted out probably thought, if I opt out, I won't have to do any more of the administration of the study. But in fact, they did. I didn't realize until later, I think one of my study guys told me, you could have gotten away with not doing that. If they drop, they drop and drop them out of the study. But I didn't know any better, and I was sort of, because I was new to doing some of the studies, I was the one thinking about the one-on-ones, not thinking about study management and so on. Because I was new, I thought, well, let's just do 
belt and suspenders thinking. Why not? Heaven forbid some person later say, oh, well, you stopped measuring the guys that dropped out, so this entire study's invalid. And by the way, it didn't take my statistician people any more time to, well, it took them more time, but they were already working uh, and it didn't cost me anymore. So I went ahead and did it. So 17 months, we collected data on the control group, the test group who rolled out one-on-ones and stayed with it, and the test group who rolled out one-on-ones and then stopped. So control, completed test, and abandoned test are the three groups of study participants, if you will. The control group had no statistically significant improvement or reduction in results and retention, nor in trust scores. Basically, things stayed the same. The completed test group had significant improvements in results and retention in both studies in the 7 to 9% range in terms of improvement. If you're unfamiliar with results and retention scores, the way we add together results and retention, which is like adding apples and oranges, 10% improvement is highly exceptional. Trust scores went up as well for the completed test group in both cases by like 25%. Now, I admit some of the trust scores were fairly low. And so 25% going from three to, you know, whatever 25% of three is, I guess, 0.8, something like that. Um, Doesn't seem like much, but 25% is a big improvement in trust scores. But in both cases, went up about 25%. I would love to tell you more about the trust scores, but we had one company, one client who says, oh, no, we have our own trust measurement system, and we had to use their trust measurement. So the scores between the two surveys, um, studies I'm talking about here on trust were used, used completely different scales. We try to avoid that, but not in this case, it was true. What happened to the test group who abandoned one-on-ones? It's not pretty. In addition to no change in results and retention. So essentially, they regress back to the mean, if you will, if you assume the control group's the mean. Trust scores declined by about 10% in both studies. It was closer to 15% in one, but let's just call it 10 in both cases. Basically, if you're going to start stuff and not finish, don't be surprised if it gets harder and harder to start stuff because your people are going to trust you less every time you do it. And the destruction of trust is enormously dangerous for managers. My experience has been, and now I'm getting out of the realm of data, I'm getting into my opinion after 30 years of doing this, is that directs can handle almost any amount of negative feedback as long as the trust scores are exceptionally high. The problem with writing today in the modern press in early 2019 regarding giving negative feedback or talking to your people about their mistakes is they're doing it from the standpoint of the average manager who has a crap trust score with their directs. If you want to talk to people about the mistakes they make, which is part of your job, and you don't work on having high trust, it's no surprise that your directs either won't change or become resistant to you or sort of blank you out in terms of communicating. You're not important to them. They don't like you. And you wonder why the team doesn't feel like a high-performing team. It's your fault. You didn't build trust with your team. And then you thought, well, I can give negative feedback. That's part of my job, which is funny 
Because basically what you're saying is, I'm willing to do part of my job, the part of my job that relies on my rule power, but I'm not willing to do the other part of my job, which is to build trust through high amounts and quality of communication. So if you start and then stop, you're going to destroy trust. So you know, what that means is, lucky for managers today, you should be cautious about what you start if you're in fact going to stop it. Because if you have an idea that I'm just going to start a bunch of things and I'll stop them as soon as I realize they don't work, one, we suspect you won't stop them. You won't wait long enough before you stop them. And two, you're going to stop more things more quickly. And the danger is you're going to destroy trust. We also have some data on managers who start doing one-on-ones without any advanced communication. And the reason that's so is they were part of a study and we measured and they didn't do what they were supposed to do week to week in the very beginning. And I assume, I mean, I think it's reasonable to assume, I could be wrong, it doesn't really matter, that they figured if I don't do the study, if I don't do the briefing and stuff, I'll get kicked out of the system and I don't want it, I don't want this extra work. Because these managers were randomly assigned. They didn't choose to be in the one-on-one test group as opposed to the control group, but we left them in the study. We really didn't intend to measure the effect. We just, again, belt and suspenders said they were in the study at the start. We're going to see what happens in terms of results from retention. Now, you could make the case, hey, Mark, that's not really fair because the study design had two groups, test group, control group, and now you should include the abandoned uh, group in the test group data. And my answer is we did. Any improvement that the test group got, remember the previous study I t- talked about where you had the test group who completed the rollout and the test group who abandoned the rollout? The abandoned group's data is included in the completed group's data. That's to maintain the validity of the study. But then we also broke out and created a separate group. So don't get me wrong, we're not, we're not cheating. As you might imagine, managers who didn't do the communications and the briefing in advance had a much higher likelihood, 2x, it's slightly more than two, but it's roughly two, of abandoning the test. But even for those who completed the test, this is managers who didn't communicate, but did complete the test, results and retention improvements were roughly half of the test group. They got half of the improvement compared to the folks who followed the protocols for briefing, and trust scores were similarly roughly improved by about half as much. In one case, it was only 40, but in another case, it was very close to 50. Imagine throwing away half of your upside in an effort to save two to three upfront preparatory hours on a long-term project, or just choosing to save two or three hours because it's going to be hard. The danger of not following through then isn't just unchanged results and retention. It's reduced trust and therefore surely reduced engagement, which a lot of folks are talking about now. I don't know how you get high engagement with low trust. I don't believe it's possible. And you make your life harder in the future. So we don't recommend you do it. Folks, if you've got a team that's technically skilled, but doesn't get along, has trouble working together, maybe gets in arguments, disagrees a lot, escalates stuff to your level a lot, the Manager Tools Effective Communicator training might be your answer. 
In one day, we'll teach your folks how to observe other people's behaviors and tailor their natural communication style to achieve more successful communications, to get their meaning across, to reduce tension, reduce drama, to reduce conflict. You can have up to 30 people in the room, and we practice and practice and practice different ways of communicating. It's great for all professionals, not just managers. And especially if you've got folks in customer-facing roles, or you've got a team that is very diverse in terms of their behavioral styles. Come and see us and check us out on the web at manager-tools.com. So what's the solution to these common mistakes folks make? I feel like this is one of those few casts where we, um, where our, hey, take action part is weaker than the making the case for the taking action. But really, you have several choices here. You can not start, and you're going to have status quo results. You can start doing one-on-ones, but not communicating about it, and then not finish because people don't know what you're doing, and it seems it's going to be much harder for you to implement if you don't communicate in advance. Those who have a why can tolerate just about anyhow. And again, if you do that, you're going to get the same results basically, but you will have destroyed trust, which makes it harder next time. You can start without communicating and finish, so you can save yourself the three or four hours. You get better results and better trust, or you can communicate in advance. You can start doing one-on-ones, and you can finish. You can continue doing them, and in which case, you get better results and better trust. 2x better results and 2x better trust than if you don't communicate. Right. So the answer follows from our first part of the discussion, right? And so the best answer is investing a few hours in the process of communicating and finish your rollout, right? Yeah. Ideally, that's that's what you do. So that's pretty clear. I think folks wouldn't be surprised by that. But tell me about this. What about the situation where somebody has the best of intents, right? Wants to do this, does exactly what you just described, communicates about it before starting, and then for whatever reason, could be vacations or an illness or got busy with a special project, CEO gave her a special project that just killed her and she stopped doing it. Yeah. What's the answer to that? First of all, don't beat her up. We're in a we're in a busy world and things happen. And here's what I would say. Consider it a poor experiment, not a failure. Don't beat yourself up apologize to everyone that you're stopping and find a time to try again. Think of it this way. You decided you're going to do it. You start doing it. And then for some reason, you have a legitimately good reason to stop. If you've briefed everybody in advance, they're going to understand that whatever it is you're doing is significant. And yeah, that may be a naysayer or two, but those people are naysayers about everything. Tack with them. Start figuring out ways to get rid of them. They're poison to your team. But you can just as easily say, hey, guys, something's come up. And you know what? Announce that you're going to stop. Don't just quietly stop doing them because you're busy doing something else. It's the same thing as trying to start doing one-on-ones without letting people know what you're doing and why you're doing them. Directs who aren't briefed in advance don't like it. They start off hesitant uncomfortable, not willing to join the party, if you will. They're wondering, why are you doing this? You know, what's in it for me? Are you doing this with other people? And so on. 
So if in fact you decide I'm going to stop doing it, have some courage, have some professional respect for your directs and say, Hey guys, I've been put on this special project. I've been told my life is not mine for the next six months. We made a start. I don't know what we learned yet about one-on-ones. I don't know if I liked him or not. Maybe you liked him. And if you did, I'd love to hear about it, but I've got to stop him. Tell people you're going to stop. Never introduce a change to how you manage without first telling people about the change. Explain it to them. Don't just let them figure it out and then wonder what happened. Because one of the things they're going to wonder is, is he going to do it? Is she going to do it when they get back? Was it even worth it? Is what, was he even serious? Did he even care about trust or relationships or what have you? Right. Do yourself a favor, right? Set yourself up for success next time you do it and hold at least one more one-on-one with each of your folks and use the one-on-one as the time to tell them part of this, you can tell, you know, Mary, Mary, one of the reasons we're, we're meeting this is to build trust and have better communication. So let me be clear with you. I'm embarrassed about it. I committed to doing this. I can't because of these reasons, but I'm still committed. So let me be just open and honest with you. Like I've got to stop for six months. I started it. I can't continue for these reasons and I'm committed to restarting them later on. So just use it as a, use this as an opportunity to set the example of what you want one-on-ones to do. Yeah. And it, it goes back to the horseman middleman test. If this happened to your boss, how would you want her to communicate with you? What would you want her to do? Suppose she decided I'm going to start managing differently. Wouldn't you want to know in advance? Yes, of course you would. Suppose something came up. Wouldn't you expect her? Wouldn't you want her? Not expect her, depending upon what you think of him or her, but wouldn't you want him or her to say, hey, listen, something's changed, right? It's normal. Now you say to yourself, well, my people aren't that way. But remember, the middleman test says, if that's what you would want from your boss, that's what your people would want from you. And similarly, by the way, if you wouldn't do it to your boss, you shouldn't tolerate, shouldn't have to tolerate it from your directs. So just ask yourself, what would I want from my boss in this situation? Would I want him to tell me? Would I want him to explain? Would I want him to say the time's not right and we'll do it again later? Sure. Or if my boss asked me to spend time with him over the course of a month or six weeks or two months, and then he or she decides going to stop. Wouldn't I expect a rationale beyond just, well, it's really not working? Of course you would. And that's what you would need to do with your team. And regardless of what you're doing, don't ever stop trying to get better. Because we've had a podcast about this before. If you're staying stable, the world's growth is making you less valuable. You have to improve all the time just to stay current. That's why when your directs say, I'm happy where I am, that's not a good answer because the world is changing too fast. So I'm going to summarize real quick. Guys, it's never a good look to put your best foot forward only to drag the other one behind it. And one of my brother Waltz and I famous phrases, favorite phrases of all time, if you start to take Vienna, take Vienna. There you go. All right, my friend. Thank you. Thanks, partner. All right, everyone. We'll see you next week. So long.